This Week at Hope Point. And if you don't meditate on the scriptures, you're going to see the world as puzzle pieces that make no sense, just a lot of pain, no purpose, a lot of chaos, no meaning. But from the beginning of time, those who read the whole, let, let the Bible put the puzzle together, they see that the purpose of life is God is calling a group of people out of a rebellious world and those people will live with God forever and, in, and they're going to make it to heaven because God can. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's Holy Word. This is going to be an interesting uh, service uh, a little odd to you, it's a little odd to me. I don't really know where it's going. I don't even know if I'll finish. Just started writing. Sermons sort of have life of their own and went a different direction really Thursday from where I started. I mean, headed in the same direction, but a huge, massive, lengthy introduction I wasn't planning to add. I was going to introduce my sermon with a life-changing moment, uh, you know, a decision I'd made earlier that tr- ended up affecting the trajectory of my life. And I just decided to get a little help with that. I put that question on Facebook and I said, I'd be interested to know of any of you out there, some decision you made in your life, it had a significant impact on the rest of your journey. And uh, we, we probably had 60, 70, 80 answers. I mean, it was like the most raw and intense responses. Not everybody that responded, I mean, they were all related to me from high school till now, different churches. I can't say that all of them are spirit-filled believers, but there was a humble acknowledgement, whoa, did God do something big at that moment in my life? And they just wanted to say it, and they kept writing and writing. I've never seen anything like this on Facebook. It's a lot of times it's like, you know, superficial, like, look at my tan and all that. But it was, it was so, so filled with humble. Ex- I just want to read some to you because they're sort of part of what I want to say. I'm not going to read the names, but some of them are here at the church. Some are, uh, one woman said, I moved to Spartanburg. I didn't want to, but that's where I met my husband and of uh, 30 years. Another woman I went to Harding University, also this is where I met my husband, changed my life. One man said, 2004, injured my back, out of work one and a half years, pain managed, didn't work, decided to go to the gym, been lifting weights hard for 15 years, and at the age of 57, a few weeks ago, I squatted 500 pounds. It's amazing. Another woman said, I decided not to go to work, but to trust that the Lord would provide enough money through my husband's income that I could take care of our children. She says, I've been doing that for 25 years. Another woman says, when my husband had a stroke, I moved to Spartanburg. We had to leave our state of Texas, hardest decision we ever made and the best decision we ever made. Another woman, when my first husband passed away, I was stuck in a rut of loneliness, and one day God said to me, life is not about you being lonely, but about you meeting me. It changed my life. Another woman left her job as a therapist to homeschool her children. Uh, Another woman, dear friend of mine, uh, who is uh, married to a former inmate that I met probably 30 years ago, So her life was changed when she began reading her Bible. 
Another woman said, when my grandfather told me, life is not about you, it never has been, never will be. It's about serving others. Another woman said, I left a career path to have a family. We're blessed with five children. I've raised them all, and now I've gone back to work. This is an interesting friend, really more of my brother's side of our relationships, but I know her a little bit. My brother knows her well. After 28 years as a graphic designer, we sold a business, so I was going to retire, but then I just had a nudge to go back to school, and I went back to nursing school. Six months later, my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor from which he would eventually die. I would need to have new training. At age 52, I graduated nursing school. Now 11 years as a nurse, as an oncology nurse. Joseph Paul, not surprised at this, said, to obey God as Pastor Richard was in India in 1996 and was teaching the book of Esther. And God told me through that passage to start an orphanage. Another woman, the day that I asked God to take the desire of alcohol from me in 2007, and when I did, I heard a voice say in my heart, I am who they say I am. A man right after that wrote, also changed life when I chose sobriety. Um, another woman, a friend of ours from high school, to leave an abusive relationship and to start all over Another woman, interesting, sort of the opposite of that, to not leave my husband after I found out he had an affair. And we have a great marriage and happy children. Um, another man chose to take a pay cut and do what I knew I was supposed to do and become a coach. I get to influence kids rather than make a lot of money. This is another one of my favorites in the career field. Finished my education degree. My father had Parkinson's, and while caring for him in the hospital, I went over to a medical station in his hospital room, applied a, some pressure, a, uh, some gauze to a bleeding wound, and while I was washing my hands, I heard a voice say, This is where you're needed. At age 55, she graduated from nursing school, and now she is the assistant director of primary and pediatric care at Conway Medical. Another woman, age 19, somebody set her up on a blind date. She didn't want to live in Spartanburg. She lives in Spartanburg, has been married to that guy for 30 years. Another man wrote last night, I've had success in my health, my relationships, my business, my finances, but my most crucial decision in my life that made all of those really possible was marrying my wife. And then finally, the last person who wrote last night, at age 47, this woman said, at age 47, we adopted a one-month-old little girl at age 47. Our kids were grown now. That little girl is grown now, and she just graduated from college and is headed to law school. Wow. 
So this is not the verse I'm teaching on, but I feel like it can tie a bow around everything I'm about to say. Jeremiah 6, 16, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. That's where every one of those people were, crossroads in their life. And by the mercy of God, whether they admit it or not, he prompted them to make a very important decision that changed the trajectory of their, their life. Well, at this time in the message, you might be asking, okay, Richard, you ask everybody, and you said you were going to start off by sharing your big event. And it is unfair that I ask people to pick one because it's, it's just now, at age 62, it's an avalanche of them, but none was more important than, than this event right here. That's a, a pocket New Testament that I, I still have. I, um, when I was a freshman at Clemson, lonely, spiritually lonely, I think I had held every office there was in high school. Then you go to college and you're nothing. <laughs> a lot of people there that don't know who you are. And I was lonely. About to this, 1979, and uh, about cliff notes on the Bible, because I didn't know what the Bible was about. And I went to this wall, I made, made a commitment to go to this wall every day. It was right in front of Serene Hall, which is where the business classes were. That was my major, industrial management. I made a commitment to either read some before classes or in between classes every day, and I can still remember the exhilaration of the first time that I finished the New Testament, though it's a small book was not much of a reader at that time in my life. And by reading that Bible, I obviously I had great confidence for that point. I knew who God was. I didn't have to rely on my student pastor, my parents, friends. I knew who he was. That's what happens when you read the Bible. You know who he is. I knew who God was. And then I began to teach the Bible at Clemson on my hall and began to travel to teach to high school groups during my college years. And by the time I got to be a senior, I knew that the most uh, productive use of my life and really the most satisfying use of my life was not going to be in uh, business and commerce, though I always have an affection for people who are great at that. But for me, it was going to be teaching the Bible. That all happened because of that pocket New Testament and that brick wall. So the last time that I was with you on this stage, we... We were looking at Psalm 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, and we were looking at some of the benefits, that's 176 verses in Psalm 119 of reading the Bible, and we said clearly when you look at Psalm 119, there's a direct correlation between this man's, the writer, his love for God and his love for the words of God. The, 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 there's no separating. Love God, it comes by loving his words because he's telling you about himself. So we're going to study Psalm 119 a little bit more and have something to tell you about how to study the Bible just a little bit, or at least make a point about that. But just rehearsal, Psalm 119 said there were some benefits by reading the Bible a lot. And we said that the first one was happiness or peace. Could you use a lot of verses? We just use these. 
Verse 1, blessed are those who are happy, or those who walk according to the law of the Lord. And way down at one, verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. So we define that day and still doing it now. Happiness or spiritual peace is the sense of God's pleasure over your life. When you are feeling the radiance of his love because you're agreeing with what he has said. You're not bucking the system. Sort of like what happened when you sang a minute ago. You were just affirming truth and you felt the radiance of God's pleasure as you would feel the warmth of the sunshine on your face. The opposite of uh, happiness and peace would be regret and shame, and reading the Bible also helps you avoid that. Verse 31, I hold fast to your statutes. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are, are good. So, we said a few weeks ago, there's no way that reading the Bible is going to remove us from pain. If you live on earth, it is a hard place to live, and the Bible doesn't eliminate that. What the Bible does, it eliminates unnecessary pain. You can complicate your life greatly by living outside of the Bible. You think you're in pain now? Well, you add that to the rebellion against God's Word, and your pain will grow exponentially. A third benefit from reading the Bible is, is wisdom from Psalm 119. Wisdom. Uh, one of these verses we've seen before, one we have not. <clears throat> Verse 73, your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding. Give me wisdom to learn your commands. I have, Verse 99 is new for us here I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. So, because this writer has already in his life identified the creator and designer of the world, he's in a category of one of the most elite, intelligent people on the planet. Because most people don't even, they don't get that. They don't know who the designer is. So he's brilliant. Matter of fact, he says, I'm smarter than my teachers because I know this, I know who formed me. He's like an 18-year-old Christian who walks into a science class on the first day of university and his professor tells the class that there is no God and all of the 100 million galaxies, uh, not only did they create themselves, but they fly through the universe uh, randomly and never collide into each other, all without God. So all these poor freshmen students believe that, except this guy, because he's already read. So he's wiser than his prof. It's more intelligence than this man who's probably got three or four different degrees in science. And this little 18-year-old boy, this believer, is smarter than his professor. Because he, he knows who made the galaxies. Do you know where you were yesterday? Probably not where you think you were. Uh, I was primarily, one of the places I was was 
uh, in Thornhill subdivision where we live. But that really doesn't tell you where I was. Well, I'll tell you where I was. I'll tell you where you were yesterday. You were 1.6 million miles from where you are today. This is how fast Earth and our solar system are moving through the universe. We travel 1.6 million miles every day. So wherever you are now, you were 1.6 million miles away from where you were yesterday. And people just want to say that, that you know, that, that just... That just happens. We just go 1.6 million miles every day and we don't hit anything. And what's interesting is our atmosphere just goes with us everywhere. It's just crazy talk to think like, like we're in control of that or it is in control of itself. I was watching, I had... Uh, a gathering of some leaders from the G7, and they were uh, congratulating themselves. They tried to act humble. They didn't come across. But they were uh, acknowledging how, uh, what a privilege it was that they had been assigned the task of saving the planet from climate crisis. Now, we're traveling through the universe at 1.6 million miles every day, and our atmosphere goes along with us and they're going to save the climate. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Then, of course, we saw the last time we looked at that great verse in verse 30, 73. We, we just made a note that we have 30 trillion cells in our body. A college prof might say those cells got there by themselves, 30 trillion. And, um, but that boy in Psalm 119 knows that God put them in his body. You know, our, on a cellular scale, your body is amazing because if cells did not reproduce like all the time, our bodies would just like crumble like a zombie. Like you have every hour, you have 330 billion new cells made in your body every hour. Nope, 300 billion cells every day. That was way off. <laughs> 330 billion cells per day. So here, here's 3.8 million new cells are made every second in your body. And I love what, and you and many university professors would just say that these 30 trillion of those, they just, it just happens. Per second, 3.8 million regenerate by themselves. Um, Jean von Neumann was a Hungarian-American mathematician, physicist, scientist, computer engineer. He was called the last of the great mathematicians who was just as comfortable in... Um, Applied mathematics as pure mathematics. And this is what he had to say about the cellular structure of our body. Our cellular network is supremely complex, capable of reproduction, growth, survival, self-diagnosis, self-repairing with a complex cellular communication and information storage and retrieval system. You have 30 trillion 
of those little machines. And the psalmist knew that God made them all because he told us at the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind in his own image. Genesis 1.27 He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number. So all of that is happening because of God. And that's why that student said in Psalm 119 I'm more intelligent than my professors because I meditate on the answers that God has given in the Bible about himself. Now, that word meditate is what I wanted to talk about today. So, it's sort of introduction because I really wanted to talk about the importance of meditating because it's all over Psalm 119. Well, let me just say this first. Let me get, make my little illustration. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. So we're going to look at the word <clears throat> meditating. Um, <clears throat> what, does it, what does it mean? And then we're going to see how often it is used <clears throat> in the Bible. The word meditate actually means to rehearse uh, in the sense of repeating something so you'll be ready. You're rehearsing it. If you're in a play, you rehearse lines. You don't have to make up the lines. They're already written. You just have to see them, remember, because you, you, you want to be ready for the play. The reason that soldiers are so good in combat is they have rehearsed what they're going to do in specific situations. So over and over again, they've done the same thing to be ready for battles. So meditation is rehearsing things truths that God has made clear in Scripture, and you just go to them over and over again so you will have wisdom. Because everything in this world is telling you that you have to doubt or deny God, and the only way that you're going to be able to... Um, know who God is in crisis is that you have meditated on what he has said. If you don't meditate, you're not going to have, not going to have wisdom. This is a, a piece of puzzle. Wells, my three-year-old grandson, was with us this uh, weekend, and so we were putting together one of his favorite puzzles. So without the scripture, this is what life looks to, like to you. Like one piece of the puzzle that makes no sense. Like life's just a bunch of meaningless, random things, no purpose, a lot of pain. And so that little piece of the puzzle goes in the top right corner of that picture, which is a fire truck. And the piece by itself means nothing, but the piece, when it's put all together, tells you everything you need to know about that picture. So, let me see if I can find some verses on meditation. This is how the psalmist says, I just rehearse. I, I read the Bible over and over again so that I'm not going to, I don't want to interact with God briefly. I want to interact with him just repeatedly. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways, verse 15, 27. Cause me to understand the way of your precepts that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your degrees, de decrees. 
Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. So, again, you say, well, what is it? That seems sort of, like, give me something more concrete of what does it mean to meditate. This is what it, I think it means to meditate. People who are more sophisticated than I do, they go to art museums and like it. And they seem to know what they're looking at. But if you go to art museums, all throughout art museums, you'll see benches. Now, the reason why people, they put these benches in because people cannot get enough of these pictures because they understand light and shadows and composition. They know they're under, that there's a masterpiece there. And the more they look at it, the more they understand just how good that artist is. So they, they just sit there and meditate. Now, that guy in the flannel shirt, I don't think he likes art, but I think he likes the girl. So he just says, I will stare at this painting as long as she does, and may I get the girl. So this is what we do when we meditate. We just find a bench, and we look at God rather than just so running through life to our work, to restaurants, and to games and just run, run, run. You never know God unless you sit on the park bench and look at him daily. That's what changed my life at Clemson. Started meditating on God. So what, now I want to ask, so what happens when you do this? Now, because you, meditating on God by the ocean on a park bench is good, but you, there's a lot about God you're not going to know by looking at the ocean. You, you can know something big, beautiful. There's a whole bunch about God. So primary place where you got to pull up the park bench is the Bible. So, so as you pull up the park bench to the Bible and meditate on God, what are you going to see? Well, that's hard to answer because that would be like infinite is what you're going to see. Infinite stuff. I'm just going to mention one maybe two things you will see. Number one, if you read the Bible, you're going to see that God is sovereign. Spend time in Scripture, you'll see that God is sovereign. Could pick any verse, a lot of verses. This is my favorite. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. So the tone of this verse is not some bratty teenager saying, I can do whatever I want. no. The tone of this is God saying, I can do anything my brain thinks of. Anything I want to do, I am able to do. There's nothing I can't do. So when somebody asks you, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? You might could just cut to the quick and say, it means God can. God is sovereign, means God can absolutely can do anything. It doesn't mean he's going to keep us from suffering or he's going to answer us in the time or the way that we think he, that we think is best. But it does mean that he's the only true king in the world. No one else is in charge. He can do anything he wants. And if you're suffering today, you need to understand that no one else is in charge of what you're going through, no other powers, not luck, not fate, not bad luck. 
God is the king of the world and he's sovereign. And if he's decided that a certain amount of stress, pressure, pain is in your life, it's because of a purpose that he knows could not be accomplished without that pain. He can remove that pain and if he doesn't, it's because of a purpose that is good. But you could be encouraged to know that the one who's in charge of your pain can always remove it. He's in charge. This is what sustained the psalmist in 119. The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. So he's in pain. What do I need to do? I need to remember God. He's sovereign. Verse 78, may the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. I'm not going to be thinking about those who are coming against me, thinking that they're in charge. No, God is in charge. And if I don't meditate on him, I'll forget that and think that other people, other powers are in charge. If I meditate on God, I'll remember that he's the king in charge. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he uttered seven statements. One of them was quite haunting. I think it was statement number four when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Looks like the statement of a hopeless man until you realize he's simply quoting Psalm 22. In other words, in the middle of his suffering, he is meditating on scripture that he has put into his heart. Now he's too weak. His body is too beaten to quote the rest of the psalm. So he just lets us know, my hope is Psalm 22 right now. I'm in more pain than I ever imagined this cross would be. But I'm not hopeless because I know how Psalm 22 ends. That's what he's saying by quoting that. This is how Psalm 22 ends. This is, he knows how the story ends. I think the band sings that. Look how Psalm 22 ends, beginning with verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me. Rescue me. Save me. Then this is what he says as he's dying. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. That's you and me. When he was on the cross, he said, that sermon will be preached in August of 2023 to a people yet unborn. He's thinking about all of us. He knew all of that because he meditated on the scripture. When the apostle Paul was in prison waiting for his eventual execution, the word of the Roman emperor, he wrote two letters to a pastor named Timothy who was having a hard time, intimidated, tempted, uh, pastoring the church of Ephesus. And Paul, even though he's in prison, was telling him, Timothy, nobody's in charge of Ephesus or your church or your life or my life. Uh, not a political leader, not a military leader, not a business leader. God is in charge of this. This is what he wrote him from prison to a struggling pastor. First Timothy 6. I charge you, Timothy, this is from Paul in prison to Pastor Timothy, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
which what will God will bring about in his own time. So, when will Jesus Christ return? When God decides. So it says, in his own time, God will decide. It doesn't matter what anybody, including me, teaches about the book of Revelation. Everything will end when God says to Jesus, go get my church. And that's when it's over. Why do we know this will happen? Because God can. So he's telling Timothy, not only God can, but one day he will. So then he, God is assembling a group of people out of this world to belong to him forever. And if you don't meditate on the scriptures, you're going to see the world as puzzle pieces that make no sense, just a lot of pain, no purpose, a lot of chaos, no meaning. But from the beginning of time, those who read the whole, let let the Bible put the puzzle together, they see that the purpose of life is God is calling a group of people out of a rebellious world, and those people will live with God forever, and and they're going to make it to heaven because God can. And then to further encourage Timothy, he reminds him of the God that he serves. 1 Timothy 6 God, the blessed and only ruler, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. So that word ruler, uh, let's see, comes from the Greek word dunastes. We get our word dynasty, long-lasting kingdom. So God is the only... Blessed, he's the only king who has a, he's the only true king who has a lasting dynasty because he's immortal. If you would have been alive during the first century, you would have been tempted to say, the Roman Empire will never be defeated. He just looked too powerful. It could whoop anybody. Then came August 6, 378 AD. The Goth soldiers stormed into a gathering of the Roman army who thought they could defend their homeland as they had for centuries. But on that day at a place called Adrianople, God said, today the Roman dynasty is over. And in that battle alone, two-thirds of the mightiest army in the world were slaughtered. Why did Rome fall? Because it was led by a ruler who was not immortal. Why will the church exist forever in the paradise of heaven? Because it is led by a king who is immortal. Sovereign. He cannot die Nothing can defeat him because he always exists. And the only things that exist in the world exist because he decrees that they will exist. And whenever he says that something will no longer exist, it will no longer exist. If you were to poll the world throughout history and ask them, 
What is something that one day in the world will not exist? The world will say, oh, that's easy. There'll be a day where the church will not exist. It's too weak, it's too flawed, and it's too irrelevant. Yet when all the dust settles, the only thing that will exist will be God. His word and his people because God can. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.